Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jay Richards and I have the great pleasure today of introducing Professor Justine Dolan and Associate Professor Martin Boussmar. And their book today is Addressing Modern Slavery and it was published by UNSW Press in 2019. Martin and, and Justine, welcome to the show. Hi Jane, thanks Hi, for having us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, just to get us started, I'm wondering if you'd tell me a little bit about your book um, and also a little bit about yourselves. How did you come together to write this great book, Addressing Modern Slavery? Um, we we both had we both work in sort of different um, disciplines, if you like. Um, I've come from law and Martin comes from business. Um, but at the same time, a lot of our work overlapped and we had some interest, particularly around that time, I think, looking at issues in Australia on supply chains. And there was a growing interest in trying to understand the goods and services that were being provided in Australia what sort of conditions they were being made in, where were they coming from, was it just overseas, was it in Australia? And, you know, in the in this topic, as you would know, you've sort of got to bring all these different perspectives together and it's really helpful to have both a legal and a business perspective on it. Um, and it was also at the time when Australia was just sort of on the precipice of um, introducing a modern slavery act, which was, you know, radical for it then. And so we thought it would be interesting um, to bring those two together and for us to work together, you know, from dis- different disciplines um, looking at these issues. Great. Thank you. Yeah, and it is a really interesting book because, I mean, I come from a law background, but you do see both sides. You do see the business side um, and the law side. So I found that really interesting when I was reading it. So then just to sort of frame it for our listeners, can you tell me what is modern slavery? Um, yeah, sure. So, um Modern slavery is a is effectively a situation where people are um, are forced to perform um, perform labor, if you will, uh, against their um, will. Um, actually, let me take a step back there. Um, modern slavery itself is, is 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 basically seen oftentimes as a bit of an umbrella term. Um, so it does also include uh, issues such as forced uh, forced marriage. But um, in the book specifically, um, we look at uh, various forms of forced uh, forced labor. Now, um, typically within an employment relationship, if you don't like what is happening, you have uh, two uh, options available to you, if you will. You can uh, you can express your voice, so you can raise the issue with people that you work with. Um, or ultimately, if that fails, then you have the capacity to basically exit that employment relationship. And those two elements, voice and exit, are very important within uh, sort of the employment relationship literature, uh, within the broader management literature. And um, you could say that within a situation of modern slavery, or more specifically within a situation of forced labor, people do not have the capacity to exit that, you know, what you might call quote unquote employment relationship because obviously it's not a proper employment relationship nor do they really have the capacity to um, raise their voice and and change the conditions that they uh, that they experience that is roughly what that um what that entails um yeah right so there's sort of a complete power imbalance yes no exactly so where you would normally obviously already 
between an employer and employee, you would normally already see something of a power imbalance, obviously. And obviously, that's the reason why so many people um, unionize in order to try and form a collective to put a bit more weight in the scale. Um, in a, a situation of forced labor, basically, the uh, the employer, again, in, in sort of inverted commas, would be basically in a, a complete authoritarian and sort of dictated figure that would entirely unilaterally, uh, you know, so I suppose determine what the conditions and the circumstances are in which you perform uh, perform labor. And and the important thing is that you do that against your will and you're not able to uh, get, sort of get out of that uh, situation. And there's lots of different labels attached to it, you know, like there's within modern slavery, as Martin said, there's it's an umbrella term, but you have slavery, servitude, human trafficking, forced labor, debt bondage. So all of these individual components are sort of separately described in international law. But the sort of the modern usage of modern slavery really got a lot of attention when the UK passed its act in in 2015. Um, And you'll see different people in different jurisdictions refer to it in different ways. Some just refer to forced labor, which is much more common in the United States, for example, whereas modern slavery has become sort of more synonymous with some of the legislation in EU, BUK, and also Australia. Maybe this is a good time to talk about it then. Um, Can you tell me about some of the legislation around the world and how that sort of, um, how does that tackle modern slavery? Yeah, so the attention, as I said, um, Mm. got focused on this issue, particularly when the UK passed its Modern Slavery Act in 2015. And that at the time was seen as, um, you know, sort of an innovative, innovative way of trying to get companies to think beyond their traditional corporate legal boundaries where companies would say, I'm only responsible for what's happening in sort of my headquarters and my operations. And what the Act was saying is that, well, actually, you've got to try and identify risks throughout your entire supply chain. Even if you have this concept, you know, this legal concept of limit liability, which your liability doesn't extend, what we're saying is you need to identify and report on risks in your supply chain related to modern slavery. So the UK Act um, was doing that. I mean, there were other acts that um, other laws, if you look at the Dodd-Frank Act in the US, um, which was much, you know, which was earlier, um, you also had the Californian um, Supply Chains Transparency Act, um, and then you had the UK Act, but that was the first one that used this term modern slavery, but each of those other ones were all focused on supply chain reporting. And then in 2018, you had Australia um, pass a law which was modelled on, you know, one part of the UK Act. Um, which again was focused on transparency and supply chain and corporate reporting and the idea that you could use mandated disclosure as a mechanism to address modern slavery. Now we'll get to the fact whether that actually works or not, but that was the premise behind the laws. Yeah, no, that really helps for context and sort of seeing the um, the way it sort of, the law has moved forward and there is there is a bit more perhaps information and public awareness of modern slavery, especially in relation to supply chains than there might have been, say, 10 years ago. So Definitely. then why do you describe it in the book as a global problem? Mm. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a global problem in the sense that obviously we live in a in a global economy. We've got global n- networks of, uh, of production. So it, it is obviously uh, within, you know, the context of, um, I suppose different national jurisdictions introducing these uh, these acts. In that sense, it's sort of a um, uh, a country by country approach. But then at the same time, the legislation uh, crosses boundaries as well. So Australian companies that applies to Australian entities or entities that are active in Australia, I should say, um, 
but then the consequences of the act are uh, are boundary crossing. So they need to look at their supply chains overseas. And the same is obviously the case with um, what Justine just mentioned, the UK Act and the, some of the acts in or some of the uh, the laws in the states that preceded that. So in that sense, whether while there is a very much a sort of country by country approach to this, due to the fact that, you know, but sadly, Australia doesn't obviously have a large manufacturing sector anymore, and all of that has moved overseas. There are sort of, you know, cross um, cross border implications of these uh, laws in terms of what companies are required to do uh, overseas. So in that sense, it's very much a, a global uh, problem and phenomenon. Yeah. yeah, and I was really surprised as I read that. I mean, coming from sort of like a consumer's perspective, just the extent how far modern slavery sort of um, infiltrates not in just to sort of the the countries where people are, you know, in these situations of exploitation, but you know how it touches sort of every aspect of um, life for those of us who you know don't think we're actually engaging in modern slavery. And so I want to ask you a little bit more about this. Um, so. You know, you write in the book that regular revelations about modern slavery show that this practice can reach into every aspect of a company's operations and supply chains, as well as into consumers' lives through our daily consumption. And that really struck me, you know, this idea thinking about how it reaches into daily consumption. And you also go on to write that the business narrative of aligning people, planet and profits is now commonplace, but it's not always accompanied by meaningful action. In our view, too few companies are walking. Too few companies are walking the talk. So, can perhaps we'll talk about more in sort of more detail about this later. But just sort of by way of introduction, can you explain why too few companies are walking the talk? Because it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to make substantive change and to tackle a problem like modern slavery, which is often in the lower tiers of supply chains. It's um, you know, it's it's there. It's not always easy to sort of uncover and address. It takes effort, it takes money, it takes time, and it takes a real commitment from companies to do it. So we'll see now that, you know, there's a lot more pressure on companies to be sustainable, to be more responsible. Um, and for many companies, that means talking to their direct supplier, you know, what might be known as their tier one supplier. Um, but then to delve down into where the, you know, the, the, the sort of the minerals or whether the uh, materials are coming from a particular product, that's, you know, getting down to tier three, tier four of a supply chain. And that's where you're more likely to have serious exploitation of workers. So to do that is a long-term commitment from a company where they have to understand that to really understand human rights, address, you know, human rights and environmental issues is going to, you know, require them to change the way they do business. It's going to require them to invest in it. So too few companies are really willing to make that commitment and um, make a radical change. Yeah. And I think as well, if I can add to that, that the um, the, the way in which the, the and the way in which the responsibilities have been placed on companies through these acts that have been introduced um, is largely through uh, reporting and transparency, as Justine already mentioned. Um, and um, it, it is too easy uh, for companies, also in the context of a lack of actual hard sanctions and you know. The tough enforcement by uh, regulators, which is pretty much entirely absent in all these jurisdictions that we've that we've discussed, for those companies to, I suppose, comply with these acts in an almost entirely symbolic manner. So you, um, you know, we oftentimes refer to the fact that 
you know, these companies produce very glossy, nice looking reports, nice looking statements, and they have learned very well how to literally, as we mentioned in the book, uh, talk the talk. So they know exactly what uh, lingo to use, talk about stakeholders, talk about engagement, you know, talk about, you know, stuff like uh, transparency and, you know, all the sort of, all the sort of stuff that, that lingo they're really good at. But um, when you pick at it and, and Justine and I have also seen that in other research that we've done, there's oftentimes, you know, lacking, there's a lot of substance lacking from that. Um, but for the, I suppose, other people who are, I suppose, meant to be scrutinizing these companies, whether that is consumers or shareholders, you know, they, I suppose, for them, that, that, that type of information might then let a company off the hook. Whereas the few that are looking at these statements and these, uh, these uh, reports produced by companies more critically, they pick out the surface that they see there's actually no, uh, no substance. So too many companies go for that type of uh, symbolic compliance. They merely want to tick their box without making those difficult changes that um, Justine uh, alluded to. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, when I've sort of looked online at, you know, the companies and they write about a sort of corporate social responsibility or this supply chain or their ethical sort of um, how they meet their ethical obligations, there is all this sort of, you know, information, but actually this it's it's small words and actual substance. So I think that's really interesting. I do want to talk to you later about um, what consumers can do and how consumers can influence change. But before we get into that, um, I want to talk a little bit about your methodology and just ask you about that. One thing I found really interesting was there was a lot of case studies through the book and it sort of moved, um, it made it really real for me, you know, really understanding what you were talking about, how individual people were impacted and how it is such a global, all-pervasive phenomenon. So can you tell me a bit about your methodology and some of your case studies perhaps? Yeah, I think we were really keen to try and, and, and move beyond the sort of the stereotypes of thinking of exploited workers in India or on fishing boats off the coast of Thailand, where all of those things are true, but sometimes we neglect to look in our backyard. And for that, that might be Australia. It might be looking at, you know, cleaning contractors in an Australian company or, you know, working in an Australian building or shopping centre or, you know, agricultural workers in the UK um, or, you know, tomato pickers in, in the US. All of these things in, in any country that, you know, when we talked about a global problem, modern slavery is everywhere, um, that countries aren't immune to it. So that was part of what we were trying and we're trying to show case studies that showed that breadth. So this really built off some of the previous work that we had been doing um, separately, um, looking at, you know, initiatives in business and human rights, looking at how you, how you effectively regulate companies, you know, what supply chain management means. Um, and this was a combination of us doing both sort of, you know, academic desk work and also earlier empirical work, um, you know, examining corporate practices or examining initiatives. So it was a mix of methods um, in doing that. And the case study was a very um, approach, was a very deliberate approach to provide, you know, a reader, as you said, with tangible experiences um, of, of what they're going on. So they're quite varied. And one of the techniques we also used, I think, was putting in some of the old, you know, the old concepts of what people thought about slavery in the 17, 1800s, and then putting a story alongside it, which might be, you know, a worker from Singapore, um, you know, a migrant worker there who's trapped in debt bondage type thing. But, you know, I'll let my time perhaps talk about some of the case studies as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that was, uh, I completely agree with what Justine said. So the, the, the point of, I suppose, showing side by side uh, stories from slavery that occurred a couple of centuries ago to what is happening in contemporary times was really to, to show some of the similarities between uh, then and now, but also, I suppose, uh, try to uh, explain to the reader how, how slavery has evolved over time. So it is, it's not the same practice, obviously. Uh, slavery has now been made illegal and and what we say in the book i believe as well is that so it's no longer about uh legal ownership but it's become about illegal control instead and um so that's what we wanted to do to really gave, give the, the the readership that sense of how because uh, a lot of people that you speak to and you talk about one slavery they they immediately equate that with sort of traditional forms of transatlantic slave trade you name it um and obviously that is something that you need to then explain um as well so that's what we did um and the case studies were really important, as you have already alluded to as well, Jane, to to really make the reader uh, aware of the fact that it's really something that touches into their lives um, as well. And um, so, you know, we, we, we try to do that as broadly as possible. And I remember also being on a radio interview together with Justine and Justine very eloquently explained at the time that, um, or maybe it isn't even a passage from the book that Justine then maybe read in the radio interview, but it was about... Sort of you're having breakfast and the items that you use while you're having breakfast that those items and so before you've actually i suppose left your house to go to work you've already touched so many products that have been tainted by one slavery so that was really the point to try and attach it to the uh, to the reader and at the same time um because we br we wrote the book for a broad readership uh i think we had the, the luxury which is not oftentimes something that academics get of not having to uh you know painstakingly explain every bit of the methodology to the reader which obviously for a general readership would be quite alienating and for the, the you know for the academic few would be would be more interesting but uh, that was broadly uh, our approach and last thing i'll add to that what justine said as well um that in the examples of one slavery in those case studies which you know for which we got data from secondary sources uh, media and otherwise but also from our own research projects uh, that were already sort of running in parallel with the writing of this book, we made sure that we took examples that were relatively well-known uh, and perhaps far away, as well as ones, as Jacid said, that mentioned, that happened in, in our backyard, whether that's a UK car wash, or whether that is Australian cleaning or Australian horticulture, to really show that this is not something that happens far away, but literally is something that, you know, you could be driving past or you could experience even if you go get a manicure or a pedicure in your local uh, uh, nail salon. Yeah, I mean, you know, I when I was reading it, I was shocked. You know, I, I sort of consider myself to be as much as I can be a fairly conscious consumer and then thinking that things in my house, as you say, like before I've sort of even left, you know, the coffee I've had or even one of the examples you gave was about garlic. You know, the garlic I'm buying could be a product of modern slavery. So that was really... Um, it's sort of a real wake-up call. So while I didn't enjoy reading that per se and having that sort of reflection at the same time, I think it's really important and it's a really important message that came through in the book. And I think it's not about making people feel guilty all the time or thinking that they can't have anything or use anything. What you're trying to do is, is, is increase people's awareness of things that, you know, when we get them, there's often a long chain of where they've come from. And if things are really, you know, that cheap and it's too good to be true, it usually is too good to be true because there hasn't been an, an um, you know, a, a ability to ensure those profits are shared with the people who've put the work into the product. Um, so, you know, they're 
it's trying to make people think about, you know, it's not just about coffee. It's not just about chocolate. It might be about the soap you use because that's coming from palm oil. Um, you know, it's the rubber in your shoes. It's all of these things. And then thinking about what's my role in this, you know, how do I do something and, and how do I create change? And the first step in creating change is educating yourself and being aware. Yeah, I think that was a really important takeaway from the book. So then I want to ask you, um, before we sort of delve into the real detailed parts of it, what surprised you about this writing this book? Um, it was probably less for me about writing it as more about the reaction to it in some ways in that there was a really um, broad interest from a really wide range of people who were interested in the book. Business people were interested in the book, um, you know, the sustainability people within companies, but also investors, you know, would you'd come across random places where investors had read the book. Um, we did um, something at a, a sort of a literary festival uh, in Australia where there was a massive audience of people who were just generally interested in understanding this topic in a very mainstream, you know, book festival, uh, readers festival. Um, and so that that I thought was really interesting to me that this is a topic though, even though the terminology is new, it resonated with people and also people felt like this is something that perhaps, you know, it's time to think about more. We can't keep going on like this, that this might prompt a way of, you know, thinking about this and how do we change it? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, so let's talk about this second chapter is on global supply chains and you've touched on this a bit already. So let's talk a little bit about a bit of more about this. So you describe global supply chains as pervasive and intractable. And you write that economic globalization and business innovation have outpaced the development of internationally binding norms concerning corporate responsibility for labor standards and human rights. Why is this such a key issue? Um, well, I think, um, I think, I think it's important to realize that, um, that a lot of the labor abuses or labor exploitation or forms of forced labor that we see are um, you know, as a result of um, as a result of of demand of for particular key products that that we have. So you know, in Australians or people in the UK would want to get you know uh, products at a cheap price, whether that's a t-shirt or coffee or chocolate or or any any good that might be tainted by um, by uh, by by forced labor. And I think it's important to see that in the context of the global economic system and what what we refer to when we say that the sort of economic development and the pace of globalization in that sense has outpaced the development of um of laws and i suppose legal frameworks that can deal with that is that really that in 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 the in sort of the early days of economic globalization it was just a bit of a wild west in the sense where companies would and this still happens but the companies would shift production to wherever it was cheapest particularly if production could be easily shifted if it didn't need particular you know on the ground technical infrastructure if you could get stuff cheaply from somewhere else you just back up and leave and if there was an issue oftentimes companies would just cut and run so they wouldn't try and remediate anything they would just cut and run and oftentimes the and this is also still the case oftentimes those um, areas regions and companies that or sorry countries that would be most um, appealing to those countries would be the ones that would have weakest labor laws or labor laws that wouldn't be enforced and that would have basically no minimum wage um, and that was in the very early days. And we we've, we have come, I suppose, you know, a couple of decades on, we have come some, we, we made some developments uh, that are initiated by companies, oftentimes sadly following tragedies. And some countries have also introduced some, I suppose, um, uh, you know, legislative efforts. But um, it, I think it, for us, it was really important to sort of show that, um, 
it is not a nefarious activity that just uh, sort of appears out of the blue or something like that. It is it is connected to um, consumer demand. It is connected to companies wanting to make profits. Uh, it is connected to the global economic system, to free trade, uh, to weaker labor laws and the absence of minimum wages or living wages in particular jurisdictions. And um, because once we, I suppose, identify those causes, then obviously in later chapters, we can also start talking about the solution. So first of all, we wanted to sort of get to the bottom. And I suppose, I think in the book, we talk about sort of the, the macro level uh, dimensions of the problem at the meso level and the micro level dimensions. And we want to really, I think, wanted to get to that to, to again, give the consumer an idea of the different um, uh, factors that add to the problem, but also the potential different points of, of intervention as well. That's interesting, actually. I want to pick up on that. So what are the different sort of points of intervention? Well, from a macro level, uh, obviously, uh, we talked about already sort of, I suppose, the, um, uh, well, we haven't actually talked about that, but international human rights frameworks, which I'm sure Justine can talk a lot more about than me being the legal scholar, but that's a macro, I suppose, you know, solution, you know, the human guiding principles and business and human rights, while obviously not specific to uh, modern slavery, but are an instrument that are used at a macro level, large scale level to try and deal with this issue. At a meta level, you could say, well, you know, if we take the um, uh, sort of the, the country level intervention or, or the company level intervention in terms of the policies and, and, and acts that they enforce and create. Uh, and at a micro level, obviously, you've alluded to this as well, Jane, in terms of what a consumer might be able to do. So there's these different levers uh, at these different levels that I feel that can be pulled, which to varying degrees might make uh, might may have an impact, but combined can potentially have a greater uh, a greater impact. But I'm sure Justine can, can add to that as well. No, I think I think you've summed it up. You know, it's sort of, and and part of what we're trying to do is also assess the effectiveness of those levels of intervention. And in some ways, you need them all um, because none of them by themselves will serve the purpose. And so that's part of what we were looking at. But that's super interesting. So then, in that sort of context, what responsibilities do companies have to workers um, of suppliers and their contractors? So then, if you so if you step back and you think about a company, you know, that's operating, you know, in the UK, for example, then it would be looking at what is the corporate domestic, you know, law or is there worker health and safety law, um, you know, the particular environmental laws that apply. And that's all within, you know, the jurisdiction of that country um, with it. And so there may be legal obligations of a company. And when you say to its workers, in that sense, it tends to be to its employees. So that will generally not then be workers in its supply chain. But if you step back at the broad level and you look at the conventions of the International Labour Organization or treaties of the UN, et cetera, they're trying to set universal standards that are applicable to, you know, states all over the world and individuals um, should benefit from that. But the way they're implemented then falls down to domestic level. So the problem you have with things like modern slavery is it doesn't stop at borders, but laws tend to stop at borders. So, you know, the the domestic laws that govern the conduct of a company and its employees are within the territory, you know, of the UK. But when the UK company is sourcing from Bangladesh, then you sort of, you get this vacuum. And while the international framework would then try and apply universal standards, it lacks an enforcement framework. So that's where you see something as pervasive and exploitative as modern slavery slip through and basically say, who's going to regulate it? Who's going to control it? Um, and that's, you know, that's where you're starting to see 
new innovative laws um, or new approaches like the EU is looking at now with its corporate sustainability directive um, to try and tra tackle that sort of and permeate borders. Um, so I want to go back something Justine you said earlier about how if it's too good to be if it's too cheap to be true sort of if it's too good to be true because it's too cheap then it probably is and I sort of I understood that but then also what struck me was your when you wrote about luxury goods because I sort of assumed and I'm sure perhaps incorrectly that if things are more expensive than the supply chain should be you know protecting workers and moving away from modern slavery is are these assumptions fair well I think probably the first one is fair but not so much mm -hmm. the second yeah. So um, generally, um, you know, the companies that market themselves on price um, are very much just focused on that. And there's often then no room to move in terms of, you know, protecting workers or providing a premium to workers or paying a wage that is a living wage or even a, you know, feasible wage that's a compliant minimum wage, et cetera. But the opposite is not always true. So then some companies which sell at a really high premium it's about how that money is distributed in the supply chain. Mm -hmm. So does it mean that there's a higher, you know, that there's higher labor costs within that? It might be the situation, but it doesn't all mean always mean that the wages being paid are higher, but it might be more intensive work that's taking a longer time. So there's, you know, higher cost, but they're not necessarily paying workers more. But it is true that there's a lot of, you know, relationship between skill level and products and, and goods and services. Um, as well. And some of those goods like clothing, which tends to be in the lower skill area, um, and there's a high supply of workers for it, then you're not being, you know, you don't get premium wages paid. So yeah, so I think that the cheaper the goods are that should make you look, but you shouldn't automatically assume that you've paid more for a product that that company is fairly distributing those profits down the supply chain. Yeah. And another way to, to look at that from a from a management perspective is to because we obviously we talk about uh, supply chains here uh, a slightly different way of looking at that is from a value chain perspective. So rather than looking at supplier supplier supplier, you look at all the uh, value adding activities from sourcing or even from from very much in the beginning conceiving of a product to ultimately designing to then getting the raw materials manufacturing all the way through to uh, marketing and et cetera. And what you see from that sort of value chain perspective that is oftentimes shown as a, as a they call it the smile of the global value chain. So at the, at the outset, when you talk about the design, like for example, uh, an Apple iPhone, for example, or any sort of te technical uh, uh, item or gadget or phone, um, you know, when it's designed, you know, those are obviously a high value adding activities that oftentimes actually take place uh, in sort of more affluent nations. Um, and then when you get to the sourcing of raw materials and when you start to talk about manufacturing, those are the, the low value adding activities where, uh, you know, basically that takes place oftentimes in uh, in emerging markets, developing countries, whatever the terminology is that you, that you prefer to do. And then we go through to the end of the value chain and the value adding activities. And then you get to the other end of the smile where you talk about the marketing, when you talk about your nicely looking Apple store, et cetera, et cetera. So that's also, I suppose, a way to visualize where companies, um, you know, make their profits, where the margins are, but also where, how the value throughout the global value chain is distributed. And that's very much 
on either end of the smile and not in the middle where we talk about, you know, raw material sourcing and, and sort of manufacturing. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I want to move to the next chapter, which is on the emergence of corporate social conscience. So in recent years, we have seen this emergence of a corporate social conscience. Can you tell me about what this is and the implications? Well, I mean, I think this is one of my, you know, the things that always triggers me because I've been to so many panels and meetings in my life and companies will always start with, you know, sort of the, they're on this human rights journey or they're on a journey of corporate social responsibility. And, you know, I'll, I'll often say to them, um, well, you know, you're never on a long journey to profit. Your journey to profit is very quick, but your journey to human rights is endless. Um, and, you know, you keep talking about journey, but there's no end to it. And there's often no sort of clear indicators of where you're going with it. So the corporate social conscience, I think, is this long, never-ending journey. It's not that it's a bad thing. It's great that companies are more aware of their impact and, and what they can do. But sometimes I think this sort of corporate social conscience is a cover for making more meaningful change. So there's a lot of cosmetic changes, a lot of superficial reporting, glossy reports. Um, but in terms of thinking about how do I actually rejig my business practice? How do I get a fairer distribution of my you know, profits and how I distribute that along the supply chain? There are companies definitely who are doing that, but the vast majority of the hundreds of millions of companies in the world are not. You know, sort of we, if you look at something like the UN Global Compact, which is still the world's sort of largest sustainability initiative, sort of more around education, et cetera, I think there's maybe about 9,000 or 10,000 companies in that these days. There's hundreds of millions of companies in the world. So, you know, most of those millions of companies are still sort of ducking and weaving and figuring out. How do I avoid real change around climate or human rights? And how do I just keep my business as usual approach? Yeah. And I think the, the sort of the corporate uh, uh, sort of social conscience has also emerged more in, in response to these types of legislation that have been introduced or in response to um, consumers making particular demands. So it's not like uh, some form of self-enlightenment has suddenly taken place amongst uh, senior management where they were like, well, hold on a minute, we need to reinvent ourselves and reinvent the way that we do business. It's been very much, um, let's say, in response from uh, government and in, 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 in to some extent in response to uh, the market. So uh, it, it's been very much sort of prompted by, by external uh, stimuli, which I think also already says a lot about it. And it's not some sort of spontaneous soul searching that has been uh, occurring. Or it's in relation to a tragedy like Rana Plaza, you know, then everybody starts to act. So what you tend to yeah. find is that companies are reactive, not proactive. So has activism played any sort of role in influencing company attitudes and business practices in this space? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more pressure on companies these days. I mean, it's not like it's a new thing in the last 10 years. If you think back, particularly, you know, to the sort of the really strong bout of corporate social activism in the 1970s where you saw, you know, real huge global pressure on companies like Nestle. Um, so it's not that this is just emerging, you know, in the last few years, but I would say there's a more consistent um, and coordinated approach, um, less ad hoc, and it's now also being supported in some jurisdictions by regulation. Um, so there's sort of, you know, there's a, there's a structure to it. Um, there's also finances coming into it. You are seeing the growth of ethical investment funds. So the, the questions investors are asking companies are highly relevant um, to that. So you get this sort of confluence of factors. Um, and one of them is activism, which is 
critical um, to keeping pressure on companies, but it's now being supported by other real, you know, useful levers. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that, but I, I would need to make the caveat there that uh, we, you know, specifically when we talk about the really large uh, companies in the world, they have annual revenues that like are many times the uh, the size of the gross domestic, you know, product or annual income of like a medium-sized country. Um, so I think that while many companies or potentially, you know, all companies fear bad headlines, they fear, you know, activists, investors, they fear protesters outside their um, uh, office, they fear, you know, civil society organizations or NGOs chaining them up uh, or chaining the, the, the sort of the front doors of the head office, etc. At the same time, their their influence and their and their lobbying is is quite substantial, right? So I think as well there are, are limits as well to what activism can achieve. Uh, specifically, you know, if you talk about these uh, these really really large companies that again have these um, uh, you know annual revenues that are many times the size of the GDP of medium sized countries, like they are they have sort of I suppose almost you know, almost nation state type sovereignty in terms of what they can get away with. And not to veer too far away from the slavery topic, but we can see this in, in, in the context of taxes and tax evasion as well. So they obviously have been international companies, multinational companies have been aggressively lobbying against any form of tax reform um, and want to keep the possibility for themselves to aggressively uh, avoid paying, uh, paying taxes. And there's very limited... Uh, capacity even among nation states to rein that in and and to try and make sure that those companies pay their fair tax. So while activism is important and has established, uh, has made you know lots of changes and has had an influence, I think that we shouldn't forget how powerful um, companies have, uh, especially the the most large, the largest companies have become in today's day and age. So then, is corporate social responsibility the same as the concept of business and human rights? No. 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 <laughs> so I think that, you know, sort of from the 1970s through to the 1990s, there was sort of a, a growing understanding and emergence of CSR as a concept. And CSR, corporate social responsibility, tends to be um, sort of, you know, where that social conscience emerged from. But it's very much a pick and choose, voluntary approach. Sometimes it might be associated with philanthropy. Sometimes it might be, you know, companies sponsoring a charity to go and paint houses for a day. And all of these fall within this broad rubric of CSR. And it was useful in that it started to have the conversation, but probably not useful enough to really move the needle. And now you'll see companies often talk more about um, that CSR language is gone. They'll often talk about sustainability. They'll talk about business and human rights. And business and human rights is sort of a trying to actually apply an established framework of international laws and apply it not just to the state, to the governments, but also to companies. And so to to spread that and diffuse responsibility. So it's it's not just sort of talking about a wish list and a moral, you know, wouldn't it be nice if a company d- does this? It's saying we have international human rights laws, we have international labor laws and companies, you have to abide by them. So having a more, um, you know, sort of a, a much more concerted and clear framework for how companies operate. And, and for context, in many business schools that I'm aware of, I won't name names, but uh, corporate social responsibility is often taught as part of the marketing discipline, so, which I think says says it says it all in itself. It's more of a marketing exercise um, than anything else. So moving to the next chapter, which is titled Regulating the Business of Modern Slavery, Law, What Is It Good For? 
You've alluded to this already, but tell me more. What is law good for in this space? Well, I think law is very um, is critical in establishing a framework for regulation, but we can't rely on law to do everything by itself. So just because there's a law doesn't mean that magically corporate behaviour will change or all will implement it. But that also doesn't mean that law is useless. You know, so you'll often have this discussion around international law and people are like, whoa, what is it useful for um, if it doesn't have an enforcement framework? But just because people, you know, continue to commit murder doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a law prohibiting murder. And so at the same time, we've got to set frameworks and standards. And so the law is essential for that. And in this field in particular, in business and human rights, um, you know, it's long relied on a soft form of self-regulation or guidance and directives, et cetera, but not a hard framework of law. And so now with something, you know, like the Modern Slavery Act or the EU directive, you're starting to see the state, the government come back into the frame and say, actually, we have to set standards for what, you know, what needs to be made transparent, what companies should do. And we also have to think about how that is enforced. So the Modern Slavery Acts, UK and Australia, have basically no enforcement. So they're, you know, half laws, what I might call them. They're a good idea. They're setting standards. They're telling companies what they must do, but they don't provide the follow-up in terms of then regulating that. So law is a critical lever, but you can't then rely on law. You need, you know, you need finance, you need consumer activism, um, you need companies to understand that to implement it, they need to change their business practices. So there are all of these things and law is just part of that package. And, and the interesting thing as well there is that, as, as, as Justine said, they're sort of half law. So they try to uh, basically also, I suppose, instrumentalize companies as agents of change and to put the onus with companies to try and make changes within their business models and supply chains. But the enforcement there uh, entirely relies on the market. So um, in Australia, we're currently debating whether uh, there should be financial penalties for companies not complying with the Modern Slavery Act. But thus far, that's not the case. And the idea there is that um, there will be, and indeed in the UK as well as in Australia, both the UK government as well as the Australian government in the guidance documents that they've produced alongside of these acts, they explicitly state that companies that don't do a good job will be penalized by consumers and investors and companies that do do a good job, you know, apparently investors and consumers will flock towards those companies. And um, obviously the UK Act, Act has been in operation for a longer period of time. Uh, Australia is, you know, is, 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 has been um, uh, sort of, you know, enacted a little bit more recently, but nothing is, any evidence is there to suggest that there is a so-called race to the top or that the market is, basically, you know, doing this carrot and stick type uh, spiel that will ultimately get companies to do the, the, the right thing. So in that sense, I think that, um, you know, the laws are, are, are obviously there for good reason, but these half laws, as Justine mentions them, rely on on this on these market ideals that we don't actually uh, see play out appropriately in practice. Hence, we're also having these discussions in Australia now to see whether we need to rely more on hard sanctions such as financial penalties in order for these uh, companies to do the right thing. I mean, if you if you thought about how you, you know, if you're crafting a law that you want to be effective and you craft a law that then outsources the enforcement to the market, and if you think about, okay, well, let's do that with tax law, for example. We'll say that you have to file taxes, but the government isn't going to follow up. So we're relying on you out of the goodness of your heart or your friend telling you to file the tax, and wouldn't it be great if you did, but there's no penalty if you don't. So of course we're not going to do that, right? We're generally, and so that's the same thing that we're seeing with some of these sort of transparency laws that 
they're good to a point. They're raising awareness. Um, they're increasing discussions, but they're not creating meaningful change on the ground. So then this relates to my next question, I think, as well. Uh, many global companies do publish information on their websites that they ensure minimum wages in their suppliers' factories. But why is this not always good enough? What's wrong with sticking to the minimum wage? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, like in in because Justine and I are the the few tragics that have really delved deep into all these uh, reports on one slavery and and whatnot. Um, and oftentimes, if you see a company say something like, "Oh, we comply with all local laws and regulation," then you know that they're probably not doing the best thing because. Uh, operating exactly that, operating within those local, um, you know, legal boundaries. Oftentimes, you know, they're there for the reason that there are limited, uh, uh, limited um, labor laws, or they are poorly enforced. So that in itself is not enough. Again, these these companies are meant to be agents of change in trying to improve standards uh, uh, overseas. And with regards to minimum wages, it, to the degree that there are minimum wages, oftentimes minimum wages are entirely out of step with uh, with cost of living. So you know, it's more important, and this is actually in another research project on one slavery that Justine and I were part of, you know, looked at whether companies would mention uh, a living wage, uh, which obviously does take into consideration what the local cost of living would be and what someone would need to make in order to have, a, you know, uh, be able to have, you know, live at a subsistence level and have, you know, uh, be able to feed themselves, clothe themselves and take care of their family. So the difference between minimum wage and living wage is is very important there. And this comes back to a point I made earlier as well, that um, like a lot of companies um, know how to sort of, I suppose, write a nice report and say the right things, but really picking at these types of things, whereas to say, okay, mention minimum wage, fine. Uh, and that means that you're probably complying with your obligations in that minimum wage sense. But that is not to say that people on that minimum wage are also able to actually, you know, live comfortably or have sort of a, a decent life. And um, that's also where potentially the threat of um, labor exploitation come in, where people might say, an employer might say, okay, well, or know that your minimum wage is not enough to, to, to get by on. So they will say, well, you can do lots and lots of overtime, or even those people have no other choice but to do overtime, uh, you know, and, and therefore might be overworked, uh, then might be not be in a position to refuse any overtime because they can't take care of their family. And then you can see, as you mentioned before, Jane, you can see that power imbalance shift more towards the employer where they might say, well, actually, if you don't accept these conditions or these conditions, then we're going to cut your overtime altogether. All so, you know, that's where you get into uh, the weeds. And that's what Justine and I have also tried to pick at in another research report to try and see, you know, what it is that those companies are actually doing behind uh, their behind their reporting, their behind that facade, if you will. So we've talked a lot about all the sort of difficulties and the problems and the challenges in addressing modern slavery. I want to turn to the conclusion of your book, which is on the frontiers in the fight against modern slavery. Can you tell me firstly, what more could governments do? Um, I think governments could think more seriously about when they're crafting laws that yeah, a law needs to be effective. So it needs to be more than sort of a cosmetic, uh, you know, band-aid for, for the problem. And I think transparency around conditions in supply chains is a very good thing. It's an advance. But then we need to look at, you know, what comes next. You, If you look at what's going on in Europe at the moment, there's a real focus on, you know, this concept of human rights due diligence, where you're not just talking about reporting, you're talking about doing. So we need to see that next evolution of laws. We've come a long way. I mean, I think 
when I started work in this area, you know, more than 20 years ago, I, I don't think I would have thought there would have been legislation that we have now that's focused on supply chain regulation. Um, I didn't think we would see something like the EU directive, but where we've got is, is not the end of the road. Um, so you have to think about, you know, how do you actually ensure that people who are working for you in your supply chain work and live in dignity? It's a really basic ask of what we're doing, that you're ensuring that the, the goods that you're selling at the other end are not made on the back of exploitation. And so for governments, they need to think about what are the universal standards that have been established for years by the ILO, by the UN, um, the OECD? How do we then ensure that our laws are an effective mechanism to allow for you know, regulation and also to bring companies along on that and say, how do we you know, incentivize your implementation of that? And then so how can corporate power be leveraged? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a real good one. I think that uh, I'm a bit more skeptical about how that can be leveraged because as I mentioned, I think that the, uh, the moments where, you know, when we talked about the corporate social conscience, that has mostly been prompted by outside stimulus. And so I think the government has, and we mentioned this in the book as well, that it's more important for the government to sort of reassert its position as the, I think we, we phrase it as the, the, the guardian of public interest, which is something that in the context of the neoliberal policy agenda and the broadly, uh, you know, capitalist um, uh, economic model has come to the background a bit. Like the, 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 the government has basically retreated largely from regulating business and has, has let business be business. So um, reasserting that role of the state, I think is, is very important. So um, I don't think that we should be too reliant on companies to sort of lead that charge. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think it is very important, very important indeed that we uh, keep a check on companies because as I mentioned before, and it's not the, the knock, I suppose, the, the work that's being done by many different individuals around the world working at companies who oftentimes themselves have a big fight to fight within their organization, trying to convince senior management and colleagues that they need to do X, Y, Z in order to address climate change or modern slavery or whatnot. But I think that um, ultimately, I think that, you know, uh, the state needs to reassert its power. And with, and with companies, we need to be mindful that as, you know, as these problems evolve and as responses evolve, so does their capacity to keep on doing what they're currently doing, which is, um, you know, having these symbolic rather than substantive responses to these issues. Um, the problem there is, is that I think, and we mentioned this in the book as well is, and I think we use the term, the, I suppose, the straight jacket of capitalism, like a, companies are beholden to their shareholders. Um, and obviously, um, you know, what shareholders uh, want and what indeed in law is also dictated is that shareholder interests are financially defined. So a company always needs to act in the best financial interests of the shareholders. And that, that in, 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 in sort of like in a nutshell is, is a real big problem because then if there is the ultimate and there's always going to be a trade-off between, you know, whether you're going to do the right thing by your workers or whether you're going to do, I suppose, do everything to reduce potential risk factors that might lead to modern slavery versus, you know, increasing your profits and your sort of dividends towards shareholders then ultimately that will always swing towards the shareholder interest. So I think that, you know, unless we redefine uh, best interests of shareholders also in a non-financial way, I think that we need to be really mindful of what companies are doing and we can't really rely on them uh, leading the charge. So then do shareholders have a role in all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. The role of finance investors and shareholders is critical um, because companies listen to money. They want access to capital. They're going to listen to, you know, what they've got to do to get it. 
Um, I don't think we should overstate it, but I also think it's one of those levers um, that that I talk about. So, you know, as even as individuals, you think about, you know, have you ever looked at how your superannuation is being invested? You know, are there sort of criteria for what's that that involved in? So we all have choices that we can make. I mean, me reassigning my superannuation isn't going to solve modern slavery, um, but it's a it's something that I might think about and think about. You know what? What type of message am I sending companies and am I sending investors and shareholders um, need to actively think about that? And this narrow concept that Martin referred to, you know, of decades past of shareholders and just companies being concerned about financial interest, those days are gone. You know that the companies have to understand that they have broader stakeholders. That this concept of a social license to operate is useful, but again, it's not the you know it's not magically companies are going to do it by themselves. You, that's where the state and regulation also needs to be involved. And this sort of hints at the next um, question. Um, how effective then is ethical consumption? Yeah, I, I, I personally am very skeptical about uh, about that. And, and one of the reasons is because I think that ethical consumption is, well, for various reasons. First of all, it's not, it's a real privilege to be able to go and buy a more expensive uh, product. And um, some people simply don't have the option but to buy the cheap t-shirt and they can't afford the... So that's one thing where like the idea of voting with your wallet is something that's a very privileged idea. Um, but secondly, I think it undermines um, uh, the collectivity in our response to addressing these issues um, in that it places the onus uh, with the consumer and uh, it says, okay, well, you as a consumer have, have a choice to do this. Now, um, that is also problematic because I think that um, by and large, I think the state has a very large role as, you know, again, the guardian of public interest to, to deal with this. And if we place the onus on the individual, like it's a bit like in, in the Netherlands, back in the 80s, they had a, uh, a campaign, a national campaign that said a better environment starts with you. And it's true, of course, if you recycle and if you, you know, sort of separate your trash and whatnot, that is all it's true, but like that is in a sense a drop in a bucket. And that again individualizes the response rather than relying on, I suppose, the more collective response. And obviously a government would put much more weight in the uh in the scale compared to um compared to an individual. In addition to that, I think the market for ethically produced goods is has been growing in, in recent years, but it's still in no way near, I suppose, you know, the market for you, I suppose your general goods. And again, this that's also a dimension of uh of privilege um as well where obviously not everyone is able to afford particularly expensively ethically produced uh products um uh, as well but you see companies particularly fashion companies come up with a a conscious line or an ethical line right next to their regular uh, offering of uh of of uh, of clothing as well which is a bit paradoxical because if you have fast fashion companies that rely on uh you know production models that are you know, bad for the environment and bad for labor standards. And you have, I suppose, 95% of what is on offer still being fast fashion products. But then there's 5% for the ethical consumer, which is like advertised alongside. Then, you know, again, that comes to the point of like, is this marketing or are we really trying to think about how we need to change our uh, business models and how we need to change our consumption patterns? So, or is it a bit of absolution for the consumer that they can pick that product as well? And does it help the company? Because look, they're also offering this, whereas 95% of the rest of what they offer is still the old fast fashion um, stuff, you know? So I'm, 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 I'm pretty skeptical about ethical consumption and its impact, yeah. 
I mean, I, I think sometimes it's, for me, it makes more sense to think about ethical consumption as opposed to the ethical consumer. Because the ethical consumer seems to imply that the emphasis and responsibility is on the consumer to do every, you know, every act they think about, where they buy, what they do, and that everything is going to change by the way we act. Whereas sometimes I think if you think about ethical consumption, that's particularly, to me, more related to perhaps overconsumption, particularly of some goods like, you know, fashion, for example, where there might be a choice that you may not need 20 pairs of the one thing and that you're awarding that fast fashion company because they're cheap. And so it might be that you do need one that's going to last you 10 years. So it's not so much to me just every decision the consumer makes, but to think sometimes around quantity versus quality and that people you know, will continue to buy goods and they need to buy good things, you know, because companies need to, they operate, they employ people. We need those profits in the economy. But sometimes it's thinking about the scale of what you do um, rather than trying to every, you know, if you make every decision like that, you'll be frozen in time. So then can we rely on civil society to an extent in all of this? I mean, again, civil society is one of those critical levers and they do, you know, they act various ways in the sort of the business and human rights movement. They might be sort of acting from the outside as an activist organization. They might be litigating against companies. Um, They might be, you know, producing reports which are doing exposés, but some might be also working sort of closely um, in, in concert with companies in some ways to improve how they're writing policies. So there's all different types of ways of working and different modes of operation for civil society in this field. And they're all, you know, they all support, they're they're supportive and they have different approaches, but they're all necessary. Um, But again, you know, you you tend to find civil society under-resourced in this area. So we can't rely on, you know, an under-resourced, underfunded um, group to then do the role of regulation, to then, then do the role of government. They're part of that mechanism, but when you're, you know, developing new laws, you shouldn't outsource that enforcement to an underfunded body. They have a critical role to play, but it's not necessarily a regulatory role, which government should be playing. And then the last frontier um, that you write about is technology. Can technology play a role in all of this? Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's funny. Um, we, for a while, um, the, you know, we we talked about uh, blockchain a lot as a solution to basically uh, as a lot of problems and obviously read more recently. And this is, I suppose, after we wrote the book, people start to talk more about, you know, AI and that sort of thing. And actually, um, not AI, but augmented reality. So AR, I believe it, the, 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 um, the acronym is, um, has been used to give people a sense of what it is to work in a sweatshop. So people would be wearing, um, you know, virtual reality or augmented reality goggles and they would look around and they would see sweatshop environment and they would, get more of a sense of where a product comes so that that can sort of help with an empathy uh, perspective. But what, what we've seen particularly is a lot of companies um, trying to adopt technologies such as blockchain, for example, to track the provenance of a particular good or service through supply chain or its supply chain uh, journey all the way from, you know, sourcing of raw materials towards, I suppose, being on, on the shelves uh, in, in, in the shops. Um, the, what we, I suppose, come to the conclusion that we make in the in the book um, is that you know you can't rely on a technical technological fix for a complex social problem. So as we talked about earlier in the um, in the, uh, in, the in, in the in the podcast as well, there's like macro level causes and points of intervention. There's meso level causes and points of intervention as well as micro ones. And to think that technology can come and and I suppose you know entirely. I suppose, solve this really complex, intricate problem such as modern slavery 
is uh is 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 in 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 essence very naive way of approaching it i mean justine has said that it's like part of the puzzle sometimes and you can sort of add to it but i think that um technology such as blockchain uh um uh, you know it can make a difference but for a large part it's just a new shiny thing that companies will focus on something that you know might appeal to the people who actually look at these reports and statements concerning modern slavery but Ultimately, it doesn't address those those fundamental issues um, that we discuss in the book, uh, where it's like the withdrawal of the state, whether it's like uh, workers' rights not being respected, whether it's the you know the, the crackdown on civil society, all those larger issues that we talk about. You know, blockchain doesn't do anything to to address those fundamental issues. So. I, I have limited. Uh, I'm sorry to be so such a downer and be so skeptical, but I have. Well, I, I can be a bit I, more positive. I mean, okay, technology. Technology on the upside is you look at um, the idea of socializing the problem. So you know that when you if you look at you know 1984 and you had the Bhopal factory disaster, most people in the world found out about that by looking at the cover of Time magazine. You know, sometime later. And then you fast forward to 2013 and the Rana Plaza and people knew instantly what was going on. So, you know, the ability of technology to expose issues is, you know, is massive. And that's that has been game changing. Um, technology to sort of look at things like deforestation, monitor the cutting down of trees or the, you know, establishment and the use of brick kilns in particularly a form of modern slavery. Again, really useful as a data point. So, you know, there's there's aspects for it. But I totally agree with Martine. There was this sort of assumption a few years ago, like technology is going to save us. Um, we've also seen technology, you know, being experimented now with gathering input from workers. Um, you know, that's been good and bad. There's been, There's some technology which is useful and some is sort of, again, a bit like a, you know, in modern form of a social audit in a different format. But there are interesting experiments where technology be, is being used to sort of pick up, um, you know, there's a there's a program in Turkey where they've been looking at cotton farms where they've been gathering worker data. So it's it's useful, again, as part of that puzzle. But I think Martin's right in terms of what companies were hoping for was that technology would solve this issue and by itself it won't do that. So then do you have any key takeaways for our listeners? Uh, buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Beyond that no, one. I mean, Beyond that one. I don't know. Oh. I, 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 yeah. Sorry. Go on, Justine. No, no, you go. Well, I mean, I think, um, um, you know, the, the, the book ends or tries to end on a, on a positive note. And it, it's a lot to, to take in for people who are, you know, might be unfamiliar with, with modern slavery. And it might be quite, as you experienced, Jane, sort of quite confronting or it might put them down or you might feel guilty or, there's a whole range of emotions, and, and the book does try at the end to, um, you know, strike a positive note. And uh, obviously, that was Justine writing that bit, where it's like, well, <laughs> together we can we can make a change, and and, and doing that, I, I, I would probably you know, ended up more of a down note. But um, I think I think being aware of it is a very important uh, first uh, step. So while you might feel like there's limited, uh, you know, things that you can do, being aware of it. We're having that conversation with someone, uh, and I tell my students this as well. You know, we're trying to have a conversation at the dinner table tonight, and say to your dad and your mom and your siblings something like, "Do you know about Bond Slavery? What it is?" And I think that 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 isn't a very important part of people of what what Justine just called socializing the idea. Maybe not through technology, but through a very analog type way of doing it at a dinner conversation. 
But I think that's, um, you know, if you're going to do anything about after listening to this podcast or reading the book, try and do that. And I think that that can already start to make, uh, can make a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, it's also, you know, people often, ask, often say, what can I do? And I think one of the first things following on from what Martin said is asking questions. So it's also asking questions of companies um, as well, because there's a lot of companies with people in them who are who are working hard to make change, but they're often fighting, you know, traction within the company or fighting the need for profit, you know, above all else. And, you know, if you're scrolling through Instagram and you're looking at, at certain goods, et cetera, if you add a comment of like, you know, where where was this made or do you know where the cotton for this came from? Within companies, they that those comments add up. They start to take notice. They start to have a discussion. You know, you're not going to magically solve the issue, but the, com- the people within companies who are actually trying to create change also need that support. And the more that we ask questions, the more that we raise the issue, whether it's of investors, whether it's of governments, um, whether it's, you know, through unions supporting those or whether it's through um, companies themselves, then you keep raising the profile or issue and demanding that the way that everything is done, the way that we're making goods can't be the way forever because we're making it on the back of slaves. So how can it be that we can continue to live in a world where people just have no dignity in their work life? You know, how how to, you know, and, and most people within a company are not comfortable with that, let alone consumers, um, let alone governments. And so the more that you ask questions, start to think about what can I do, but also, you know, what are the big players? What can they do? That's particularly governments and companies. Then, you know, you're doing something useful. Yeah, that's really two really important t- key takeaways that, raising awareness, having conversations and asking questions of companies. Um, I think I think that's fantastic. So then just before you go, I've taken up a lot of your time, both of you. So thank you so much. But before you go, I just want to ask, what are you working on now? Ah, um, so I was um, lucky enough to get a um, research grant from uh, the Australian Research Council and um, I'm embarking or I've just a week ago embarked, I should say, on a, a three-year um research project um, on uh, modern slavery and climate change, so the link between modern slavery and climate change. Uh, And in about two years and a bit, I'll be um, publishing a book with uh, Cambridge University Press on modern slavery and climate change. So perhaps you can have me back on the podcast. I'd love to have you back then. We can discuss. Two and a half years. No, no, I'll still be here. Don't worry. Okay. I'm working um, on a project. So for most of my career, I have focused on what companies are doing wrong. And so uh, what I'm interested now is finding examples of where companies are not only sort of doing something right, but they're they're sort of taking a really innovative and radical change uh, to approach to a certain practice. So I'm not looking at the whole company, but I might be looking at one aspect of sourcing of a supply chain, or I might be looking at, you know, how they're profit sharing um, with mining production or how they entered into a relationship with indigenous communities. Um, And uh, together with a couple of colleagues, we're trying to build an evidence base of this best practice case studies. And um, I'm at the Australian Human Rights Institute and we're trying to build this um, case cases where then we can point to, and we can point to both, you know, to regulators, to companies, to civil society and say, we don't have to accept that bad practice is a normal part of a business. You can still make a profit and you can look at, you know, how this can be done well by still rewarding workers. So we're trying to find projects that might be starting niche, but are scalable and replicable and would be examples of sort of due diligence in practice. And that's what we're um, examining now. And we found some, you know, really great case studies and 
in a year's time also, like my time will be writing in a book. And so hopefully in a year and a half, this book will be out um, and we can look at it then. Well, that's great. We can have you both back because that also sounds really interesting and important work. Um, so I'll look forward to both of those books. Um, Thank you so, so much, Jane. We look forward to it. Oh, excellent. Um, so just to sort of wrap it up, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Professor Justine Nolan and Associate Professor Martijn Boosma about their book, Addressing Modern Slavery. You've been listening to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Justine and Martijn, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having us.